Welcome back to the Friday afternoon nap time show. My name is Jeff Gibbard, and I do this every Friday, at least I try to every Friday, when my son is napping, and I jump on and we talk about stuff. Sometimes guests, sometimes no, streaming live and unedited to all of your favorite places like the LinkedIn, like the YouTube, like the Facebook, and I'm even on the Twitch. And today, I have Yvonne and Chris back. Two episodes ago, I think, it was episode six, I believe, we talked mm-hmm. about the concept of bias. We addressed... Uh, went into a little discussion about unconscious bias and desirability bias. P.S. Listened back to that episode. Something I don't do a lot with podcasts because I make a lot of them. And also sometimes I don't like the sound of my own voice. But that was an awesome episode. Like I really enjoyed listening to it. I was uh, I was walking around the one day uh, going to the pharmacy and I listened to the episode, the whole thing. And I was like, damn, this was a good episode. So I am so glad to have you both back to continue the conversation because for those that are watching or listening after the fact, here's kind of how this went down. So we did that episode, three mm-hmm. of us, which awesome, just love getting together with you two. And after we clicked end stream and it was just the three of us, we kind of like continued the conversation a little bit and it led us yeah. into this really interesting path where we talked about the sort of, so then what happens from unconscious bias and desirability bias and where does that potentially lead to and one of the things we talked about was this concept of assimilation whether that be um marginalized groups assimilating into the dominant group um or in some cases the concept of masking or code switching and how that kind of is an outgrowth to a certain extent in some ways of of desirability bias but also there's a bit of um confirmation bias about how you're supposed to behave when you see people what like when you have um systems where there's a lack of inclusion you Mm. have confirmation that there's a certain way that you're able to progress if the only people that are moved into certain roles behave a certain way and assimilate to a dominant culture you have a confirmation bias that this is the right way to behave um even if you didn't originally um believe that you you are presented with evidence that confirms a belief that you may have that this is the only way to get by and i thought that was just such an interesting concept so um really glad to have you both back on to talk a bit about that um for those that didn't tune into the episode six p.s you should go back and listen to it but for those that haven't can uh, the two of you do me a favor and for those that don't know you yet introduce yourself just a little bit who are you what's your background um just go into a little bit of that yeah, I want Chris to go first. Okay, Chris. I was just make- about to say, Miss Yvonne, you first. But all right, mm-hmm. I'll, you already called me out. All right, uh, <laughs> everyone. My name is uh, Chris Lynn. Uh, I am uh, in talent development, and yeah, thank you, Jeff, for uh, throwing my deets down there. Oh yeah, I'm prepared now. And, I'm prepared. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I I focus on everything around building talent strategies and setting employees up for success uh, in, in their roles. And so love, you know, talking about how talent really fits into the overall employee experience and how it fits into society. And so, um, yeah, excited to be back. All right. So uh, batter up on me. I'm Yvonne Alston. I am the Chief Culture Architect, CEO, and founder of Indelible Impressions Consulting. We are a DEIB firm based out of Connecticut. Um, I love using the term culture architect because that is the focus of what I do um, as I lead a team of very talented individuals with head and hearts aligned with the mission of DEIB. Um, I like to help cultures build 
equity, inclusion, senses of belonging. Um, I love engaging with people with a real head and heart approach to help transform employee experience, no matter what your role is and where you are um, in the mix. Um, yeah, and just really help with transformation. Excellent. All right, so let me frame up the discussion and then I'm gonna actually kick it over to uh, Yvonne. I want you to start off with this and then Chris, I'd like you to pick up and fill in any additional thoughts or gaps on this. Um, so last time we spoke, we had a conversation around confirmation bias, that is seeking out information that confirms a pre-existing belief or set of ideas, right? And that's something that's so present, uh, especially I think, Chris, you may have made this point that among leaders, this happens probably more than anywhere else, that leaders are often out seeking their own uh, confirmation that, oh, this is the right move because other CEOs are doing it or this and that, and they're using what's going on in the world even though they're all kind of taking cues from each other to confirm that it's the right move, right? So we have this whole world of confirmation bias uh, where it stops us from learning new information. Um, mm -hmm. And then we also have, again, desirability bias, this idea of believing something because you want to believe it. And we talked a bit about the idea that desirability bias could, in some cases, precede a confirmation bias, that you want to believe a certain thing, so then you go out and you you believe it because you believe it to be true. Uh, yeah. You wanna believe that it's true, and then you go out and you see confirmation to make that. And now here we are, and the topic of today is to talk about assimilation. And I want to start with you, Yvonne, because you had brought up in introducing yourself the concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion, but then you use this word, belonging, mm. right? And when we talk about the concept of assimilation, which for those that don't understand uh, what that concept is, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit throughout here, but it's, it's changing and adapting to fit in with a different um, set of behaviors or uh, circumstances so that you can kind of fit in and kind of almost erase your own identity to to be a part of it. And you said belonging. And I want to know where you think the intersection, overlap, and clashing of belonging and assimilation, assimilation would happen, right? Because it could sound yeah. like assimilation is a belonging strategy. Yeah. Um, it could also be that assimilation is a really uh, uh, counterbalanced idea to actual belonging. So I want to just give it to you to start with and kind of pick up where you think those two things um, interact. Yeah. So assimilation, I think, at least when we think about the definition of it, right, it can go into that realm that you just spoke about. It can also be where you're assimilating to an environment that there are some behavioral norms, right? In certain cultures of organizations, right? And the good ones, right? Like be to work on time or, you know, no cursing in meetings, things like that. Assimilating to some of those cultural norms is a good thing. Where we get into trouble is with that other part that you just talked about, where we're diminishing parts of ourselves and our identity because there is an expectation within the culture and the environment that we engage that way, where we look that way. Um, as it relates to how it bumps up against belonging, the concept of belonging is really about one's ability to show up in their, as their authentic self, their most authentic self in that given environment, in the workplace, for example, right? And so, when there is assimilation, there is a lack of acceptance of individuality, of authenticity that says you have to look and function this way. So I'll use a real world example of myself as a Black woman. 
um, I think when I was first starting to come into corporate America, it was being overly conscious of the way that I spoke, some of my cultural norms, the way that I wore my hair, um, the way that I engaged with others that felt very prescribed for the environment, right? So to be able to be accepted, to be taken seriously, intellectually, um, I had to diminish those parts of myself in order to adapt and assimilate to that given culture. And right now, that is at a crossroads in organizations when it comes to creating a true sense of belonging, right? Because again, belonging is about the authenticity that we should be able to bring forth. And now we have people like myself and Chris and others who are championing the importance uh, of authenticity to drive belonging for everyone, regardless of how you might identify racially, ethnically, uh, socioeconomically, religiously, all of those, those facets. Can I ask you a quick question before, um, before I let you jump in, Chris? What occurred to me there is in the discussions of assimilation, we're often talking about more marginalized groups of people assimilating to a dominant culture. And I'm yes. thinking back to the conversation we had in episode six, where you told the story, an amazing story, of a gentleman who gave all of the outward appearances of being someone who believed in a white supremacist Nazi ideology, but mm -hmm. was trying to shed himself of it, right? Yeah. And I think what we're talking about, and you also told the story of a guy who was very resistant to being in a DEIB training. And when we discuss assimilation, we're often talking about, again, marginalized groups being kind of forced to assimilate with a dominant group. But in some cases, there is an expectation that we're asking the dominant group to assimilate into new behavioral norms that is more accepting of others. If either of you could kind of comment on what is the fundamental difference between asking a marginalized group to assimilate into a, a dominant group versus a dominant group being forced to assimilate into a new way of behaving that's more accepting of a, a broader group of people. Yeah, I, I would jump in and say, right, assimilation is, is really where you are, if you are being, or if you are assimilating into another group, you are essentially shedding or rejecting your own identity, right? You are denying your own self to be able to be seen as accepted into this new group mm. or to be accepted into this new group, right? Whereas a dominant group assimilating into a minority group i don't see that as a don't necessarily see that as a thing right because they are not the dominant group i can't think of any example where a dominant group has assimilated and shed their own identity in order to join a marginalized group so in I the case don't. so let's say yeah. someone let, let's paint an extreme picture just to give um to, to like be able to discuss it. But imagine you have someone in a company who, you know, I, I'll just use a more extreme example of the story that Yvonne told. Yeah. Like, let's imagine that this guy didn't actually come to the DEIB training. He mm -hmm. didn't come at the last minute, foot in the door sort of thing. And yeah. he was actively resistant to it, right? Yeah. And he wanted to hold firm to white supremacists, you know, potentially Nazis. Like, let's make paint it really extreme. We're talking about someone who is like off the charts, refuses yep. to acknowledge the validity of the existence of people who are anything different from what that person might be. Yeah. That person to be able to exist and remain employed with the company does yeah. actually have to put aside those personal beliefs and can't live authentically with that outward, you know, expression yeah. of hate. 
So there is an expectation of that person assimilating, but it, I, I sense that there's something different there, that there's yeah. ultimately something that's different between the two situations of asking someone to put aside something that is unique to their identity about expressing themselves as a person versus expressing their biases and, and um, bigotry against other groups, that in those two cases, the assimilation has a different flavor to it. So like not all assimilation being equal. So I'm, I'm curious if you could pick up the ball with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I think assimilation has to do with identity and not so much belief and behavior. Um, although, you you know, when you talk about integration, right, when you talk about someone integrating into an organization or into a culture, right, I think that that's where that's the might be the difference, right? It's like, hey, you might believe these things. How do we help you understand our point of view right it is not being forced upon that person um either you know either that group like we may not be forcing that belief on them but we need them to understand the 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 consequences of their behaviors and their beliefs yeah i'd like to add on to that because i think this is a really interesting discussion so I've been part of discussions in organizations where folks do feel like they're being forced to assimilate, right? They're being forced to accept things that they inherently don't agree with, right? They feel like it's being forced upon them. Um, I think about that in the, I mean, we could even go into, you know, how that impacts in ageism, right? Or in this age of AI, right? And all the technological advancements and forcing people who are not used to engaging with technology in certain ways. And then the company moves to new platforms, new ways of doing business, et cetera. And people have to adapt, have to adopt and then adapt to something different. And I feel like that's what you're hitting on a little bit there, Jeff, is that, you know, is there this phenomenon that equally occurs in certain settings where people do have to assimilate to, talking about bias, having DEI be a prevalent cultural theme and norm within the organization now where it wasn't before. And so I do think that there is some of that that does occur and it creates a bit of a rub within an organization because people are feeling like, well, we didn't used to talk about this and I was very comfortable not talking about these things. And now you're making it spotlight front and center. And now we have to talk about it. Or I, you know, feel like I can't, I could still have my biases, but I can't talk about them anymore. And I can't talk to people the way I used to and all of these things. So there is a small component. I get what both of you are saying. I think there is a bit of a small component component of assimilating, right, that is uncomfortable for folks, and that we're not necessarily making allowances for certain behaviors and language and things like that anymore. And people have to assimilate to this more sensitive culture now within organizations and society. Um, but again, I think it's just a matter of, do they have to shed who they are because it's not widely accepted. I would challenge that. Do they have to diminish the harm that occurs from the things that they were saying and doing before? Yes. 
And so for me, that is a definitive line in the sand, if you will. Yeah, and I'm going to put up a, a comment that just came in real quick, and and we can comment it if you'd like. But um, this is from Jason, who um, Jason works at Council for Relationships, which is a nonprofit that I'm on the board of. Mm -hmm. And um, this is this is Jason's thought. I'm hearing the uh, thought from Jeff that it's changing the behavior of sticking to their belief system and challenging themselves to be open to another ideology. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. Um, but one thing I also wanted to put into the space just to, as a conversation is that in any situation where there's uh, either assimilation or integration. What we're often asking people to do is in some way be, I don't want to say being inauthentic to themselves, but at the very least put on a mask, right? To, right. to in some way have to present themselves differently in different circumstances. And I think part of what I'm curious about is where that line is, where putting on that mask is a, um, is a harmful act of assimilation that yeah. you shouldn't be forced to do versus where it's professionally appropriate or where it's for the good of the team. You know, I, in my book, The Level of Leader, I talk about the difference between agreement and alignment, which is something that I, I learned and talked a lot about in an old consult, consulting firm that to be in alignment doesn't mean you have to agree. It just means you have to be uh, willing to work together towards a certain goal. So I'm curious if, yeah. if either what Jason put up um, in the comment or what I just said about masking, if either of that strikes you as something that, that furthers the discussion about this. Absolutely. And I think what Jason mentioned is really important, right? It's about being having a growth mindset in many regards, right? In terms of how we're growing and evolving as a society and how that culture influences the culture of the workplace. Um, and so it is, it is about broadening more than it is about limiting, right? And I think that that's really important for folks to know, especially when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, is it's never about making anyone or making anything smaller. It's about broadening out. It's about being flexible and agile and going up and wide, right? Um, so I think that that's really important. Um, your last part, if you could just restate that for me real quick, you were asking. Yeah. Sorry. So about, about the masking, like kind of where is, yeah. So, so, so this is in, in other circles. So I, I refer to it as masking as someone of yes. the neurodivergent community, but it's often in other, um, in other communities, code switching, right? Yes. So like the idea of shifting how you would normally be to be presentable in another context. Um, yes. and I'm curious where that line is. Cause I know for myself, you know, as someone who's neurodivergent and grew up in circumstances where I felt I had to present myself, I had to tone it down. I had to try to really lock in and, and do certain things well, even though they were difficult for me, you know, especially given that I have no other real intersecting identities that are marginalized, like it was tough. And some of those things actually turned out to be valuable for me professionally, but there, there is some pain and discomfort from having to do that. But that's, that's not the same thing as when you are truly in a space where you don't feel safe and have to code switch for your own safety. So I'm curious if if you can expand upon that and kind of talk about where that line of masking and um, uh, or, or code switching goes from being something where it's a mild inconvenience or it's something that may actually be beneficial for the alignment and, and growth and, and um, success of the team versus where it's actually something that may be harmful. Yeah, I think code switching is exactly that place, right? When you're just perhaps adapting and adopting certain norms within the culture 
that are, to your point, a small inconvenience, that's one thing. When you have to change who you are, when you have to change your appearance, when you have to change your tone of voice, when you have to change how you dress, when you have to change things that are inherently part of who you are, that's the danger zone. That's the code switching. Um, again, I'll speak from lived experience. When I got, when I went to school, which was a predominantly white institution at the time, Quinnipiac, when it was college versus university. And then when I got into corporate America, how I engaged culturally at home or in the spaces that I was most comfortable with as a black woman were very different from those other spaces. And at the time and the era of those things, of, of those experiences, code switching was a part of survival and the only way to progress. So making our personalities smaller, making sure that my hair was straight versus wearing it natural, which is curly, um, talking in a particular way and making sure that I was extremely articulate and didn't have too much of my cultural tonation in there, right? All of those kinds of things. Um, other Black colleagues where we'd want to go and high five each other like, yes, sis, right? We're like trying to be very executive presence, if you will, right? In order to be seen, um, to be seen uh, as being professional, to be given opportunities, to be able to move forward in my career. And that just felt awful. It felt so crappy. And so it is something that at least I could say for myself and some of my other um, colleagues in different uh, organizations and industries, this was very much a shared lived and professional experience, right? Or if it's even engaging with folks of authority, right? Uh, we think about this interactions in policing, right? And so how we might want to talk and engage becomes very different when the threat is very evident, right? We, we talk about, for example, in the Black community about having to have the talk with our kids, right? You might want to sit there in your vehicle and say, what's going on, officer? Like, I shouldn't be able. But no, we know that we have to assimilate to the conditions. We may have to code switch so that there's something in us that appears less threatening, right, to the audience. So for me, when I have thought about assimilation and code switching and what I used to do and where I am now, I'm no longer interested in that behavior. I don't take part in it in any way. And I push back against it when we're uh, guiding and leading other organizations, right? That we're no longer making ourselves small to be more palatable to others in other environments, right? Like my existence, I am allowed to exist as I am and to take up that requisite space. And I am no longer willing to make myself different for your comfort. So you mentioned several different things there, which I think help to illustrate just how big this is interaction oh, with yeah. cops, how we show up at work, how we show up with certain different groups of friends, right? So this is, this is really endemic across all areas of life right now. 
So it's obviously a big thing. So I'm not going to be so naive as to think that we can solve this here on LinkedIn Live right now, because it it it, it there's different answers for how we maybe address this. And I think we yeah. can definitely talk about um, experiences and help make it real for people. But I'm going to fast forward to the assumption that these are things that are happening, that mm -hmm. people of all walks of life have been in experience where they feel like they have to hide a portion of themselves in order to assimilate into a situation. Yeah. So we can't necessarily fix at, at a global level, at a national level, how we how we handle this and how we create spaces that are safer for people to be themselves and not have to hide parts of themselves to be able to show up as themselves authentically. But what I'd like to try and do with the remaining time we have here today is to talk a little bit about small actions, things we can do on the ground level for the individuals who might be watching or listening to this. What are some things that in your experience as you've worked with organizations, you know, you work with companies, you lead uh, large executive sessions, you, you have company-wide meetings, but a lot of this comes down to sometimes there are key people in key positions that have the power and influence and privilege to be able to make some changes. And I'm curious, what are some small things that potentially could be done either at a behavioral level or at a policy level that can create the conditions where people don't necessarily have to code switch or mask or be unauthentic and assimilate to a dominant culture, but instead can show up and bring their actual unique way of being in the world to those organizations and spaces. So if you could provide maybe just some, some very tangible takeaways for people, what would you sure. recommend? I would recommend it starts with conversation oftentimes, right? The sharing of dialogues, sharing lived experiences for people to understand uh, what some of the differences are within different identities, right? What are those cultural experiences? So starting to have those conversations is a big part of that. I think also uh, for folks is to create opportunities where people do get to share their cultures in different ways. I know some organizations we've started with them of doing, and it seems very rudimentary, but kind of like these cultural potlucks, if you will, right? Where people get the opportunity to experience differences within their colleagues, um, understand a little bit more of the history and all of that. And I think it is in that sharing, in the dialogues and sharing parts of ourselves and our cultures that we start to create new normals. You know, we start to create new norms of being able to be oneself because once you start to understand what is important to folks, I think majorities start to lean in and go, well, why don't you dress that way? Or why don't you express yourself this way? Why don't you wear your hair that way or the nose ring or perhaps a, a dot on your forehead or a hijab or all of these different things? And that's what starts to make organizations of leadership take a closer look at some of the policies and the processes that exist within the environment that are shaping the culture, but are also very much limiting it, right? And so then we can start to peel back some of the layers and start to discuss, well, why is it this way? And how do we challenge that in a safe way that's safe for the individual in terms of that individualistic expression. But then also, how do we start doing that in a way that starts to almost, whether it's uh, said or just uh, inspired for other people to show up as their most authentic selves, right? And so I think that 
we can start challenging the environment in these ways. We start to have conversations, then we add a little bit more to different actions, right? That can help to normalize the differences and wider acceptance of that. Um, I think also when we're thinking about different ideologies, um, different, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, Oh my God, I actually drew a blank for a second. Oh, um, you know, different holidays that people celebrate and things like that. People can start to talk about what's important to them. Like, for example, today is Eid. And so, you know, we have folks that are just coming off of Ramadan and now are going into Eid and how organizations are talking about that, how organizations are being flexible around that. Um, one of Indelible's clients most recently, I went in and had to talk to the leadership actually about that, that Eid's coming up. Well, exactly what day is Eid? Well, it's between Friday and Saturday. What exactly, what time is it? It's like, well, it depends on where the moon is. And I had to give a little bit of an education to say these are the employees that actually celebrate Eid. And so could there be some flexibility in the schedule there? Now, come next year when Ramadan occurs again and and this that they have that now as a new policy and process in place to be sensitive to that and greater allowance. Through that, more people started asking more questions. Well, what else should we be mm -hmm. contemplating and thinking about? And so it brought in the conversation. So now there's more movement in that direction. So it's moving a little bit away from the old, but again, it's not limiting, as we can see, it's actually expanding. So I think conversation, I think intentional actions um, that come from that and making that a priority. And as always, leadership, leading from the top, right? Being an example of that. Um, if something is important to you and part of your identity, be vulnerable enough and willing to share that to further set the tone within your organization and start driving more acceptability of that. I love it. And what you, so you said something about um, people asking questions and it reminded me, I actually just saw this TikTok earlier today, but it was somebody talking about how they don't use certain terms and they, they approach discussions about racism and you know, uh, equality and equity in ways that are kind of more roundabout because what they're trying, they're not trying to change someone's mind in the moment. They're trying to get that person just to, to want to learn more. Yes. And the belief is that by getting people to be curious and to learn more, it opens their mind and then they have a greater awareness about things, which, you know, to your point about, um, you know, starting with discussion and, um, you know, being able to celebrate or observe or be respectful to different um, cultures and customs in a workplace, when you have greater and broader awareness across the team, you yes. have less of a chance that people are going to accept shutting down and marginalizing other employees. And there's just a more of awareness like, oh, but you're doing that. And that actually discriminates against that person. Yes. So that, that's, I think, the idea is that by opening up people's minds, you, you generally, um, you reduce the likelihood of that. Um, Jason also put something up in here that I think is a good point for us to close on. And I'm curious your, your thoughts on it. So I'm going to put it back up on the screen. Sure. Um, but Jason asked this question and I've, um, I've heard a number of people talking about the shift the Gen Z will make. And this, this follows the conversation from, you know, maybe mm -hmm. a decade ago where we were talking all about millennials and how they're yeah. going to change the workforce. And, um, I'm curious what you think about, you know, you're, you're in, many companies doing this and you're seeing people across the age spectrum 
do you think that the Gen Z, um, you know, I don't want to say takeover, but like the the emergence of Gen Z in the workforce, especially as they're pairing with millennials who mm. may not have been able to make as much progress because of the the sort of opposition of the the existing guards. Do yeah. you think now with the support of Gen Z who are even more, um, you know, firm in their beliefs and firm in their acceptance of differing points of view, do you think that's going to ultimately change um, how companies open up and and allow people their space to be themselves rather than assimilate or code switch? Yeah, uh, the answer is a resounding yes. Great question, Jason, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Excellent question, Jason. I don't think they have a choice because it's such a part of their culture, right? Both millennials and Gen Z, that when it comes to employers, they have to be more open. They have to be much more expansive. That's the only way they're going to get the thought leaders of tomorrow into their doors and not only to be able to get them in their doors, but also to retain them. Um, it's a requirement now for both millennials and for, I believe, Gen Z that they want, they're requiring cultures that prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion, that prioritize belonging. And if they're not getting that, then they're not going to be interested in your company. So I don't think that there's going to be a choice. I think what we do have to be cognizant of is some of the prior generations, right, that are trying to catch up both with the behaviors and the language and the more expanded thinking and to be sensitive to that and not force them along or drag them along to where we all are, but having a certain level of calibration for those who this isn't a visceral for them right? This isn't how they were raised to think or feel or behave. So it's going to take time for them to acclimate to that. So there does need to be a sensitivity and a calibration there. Um, But I do believe that there's no employer on the face of the earth that's going to get away with some of the old guard and the older ways of thinking about culture um, and the limitations therein. It's it's not progressive, it's not innovative, and um, the current generations like they're just not having it. Yeah, <laughs> they're just not, and so and that's a great thing because that's the that is they're going to force us into this next level of progression. And I think that that's great. And I champion it. Um, I just am also cognizant of how it can create polarization in other areas. And so I think that is the very strategic balance that we have to have as leaders are engaging in these conversations and setting new norms within their organization's cultures. 100%. And and I would say one of the things that whenever the conversation of millennial or Gen Z comes up, what I typically try to think about is that like, this it's not a monolith, right? Like it's not like this generation mm-hmm. is, but what we, what we can say with relative certainty is that each of these demographics that we're talking about have grown up in similar conditions. And as a result yes. of those similar conditions, they have different ways that they've related to the world around them. And I think that when you are in the generation Gen Z, you've grown up in discomfort and crisis almost your entire life and in a state where things are constantly changing and in flux. 
So right. your your comfort level with change is much different than that of yeah. the older generation that may be more entrenched. And what I would offer to your to your kind of to your point about the divisions and the sort of polarization is that I think if we can if we can make clear that the discomfort is worth it because yeah. by by expanding the pool of perspectives, expanding yeah. the pool of ideas mm -hmm. either by age, by political affiliation, by religious affiliation, by uh, culture and race, made up construct, construct of race, but like the those different experiences give different perspectives and you can solve a problem so much more effectively and creatively by having those different yeah. ideas. And I can only beat the drum for myself as a neurodivergent person. I know that I see things differently than those who would consider themselves neurotypical. I have a different yes. set of skills. I see the world through different lenses. And I know that that balance, because I can't do the things that I could do as well if I didn't have partners who were not like my brain. And in the same way, I know that I provide things to the people that I work with because mm -hmm. I see things in the way that I do. And I know that if we multiply that out and, and put it across all of the different cultures um, and, and ways that we can be different, I know that for certain that the discomfort that we feel at change yes. and moving from homogenous cultures into diverse, inclusive, and equitable cultures is going to be worth it. And that's coming from somebody who is not a capitalist. So, you know, <laughs> it, I, if I can say it, then I believe anybody can say it. So Yvonne- I think you're 100% right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I always, when I'm talking to clients, I'm always like, do you understand the richness that goes hand in hand with diversity, equity, and inclusion to your own personal life, as yes. well as in the workplace, right? We get all these different beautiful lived and professional experiences that can be harnessed within that given environment that can expand innovation, thinking about tapping into new markets. I mean, it's just, it's, you become so much more limitless, right? By allowing for that expansion and allowing for these ideas and the problem solving to percolate and to be pervasive throughout the entire organization. So you're right. And that's why we have so many benefits to both the human case and the business case for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the workplace. And hopefully that bleeds over with people, as we say, like, take this everywhere your foot shall tread is the indelible mantra. You might learn some of this in the workplace, but it is so apropos and applicable to your family structures, your neighborhood, your communities, all of that. So a hundred percent. And yeah. Yeah, another way that I can um, sort of just um, amplify or, 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 or just underscore the point you're making is that I've found that learning about other people's different experiences, it's almost in some ways like reading a comic book or reading fiction and what that does to your ability to understand things like resilience or courage or any of vulnerability, um, excellence, ambition. Like you can learn so much by reading other people's stories. Yeah. And we understand that when it comes to fiction. But for some reason, when it comes to other people's actual lived experiences, sometimes we don't get we don't give ourselves the opportunity to learn from that in the same way. And I just got done reading a book that if you haven't read it, and I, and I believe we both uh, are connected to this person on LinkedIn, but I read Sharon Hurley Hall's uh, I'm Tired of Racism yeah. book. And yeah. first of all, let me just say, like, I am in absolute awe of her writing. She yeah. is one of the best writers I think I've ever read in my life. Oh. So easy to read her book in spite of the fact that it's a very shout out Sharon, shout out to yeah. Sharon. <laughs> but her book is incredible. And what and the reason I bring it up is that she speaks through her experiences and she speaks yeah. through conversations that she's had and things that she's gone through. Yeah. And in seeing that, 
it re it it gave me a new way to look at certain types of experiences and imagine myself in her shoes and think about what she went through and it was like a really i can understand why someone would be tired of racism um yeah. because reading through that yeah you're like it's exhausting it's got to be absolutely exhausting and That's i think why we, we can empathy. Yeah. exactly and and yes. i think in order to learn that Yes. We cannot simply assume that we know and we actually need other people in order to get that. So just to underscore your point, I think being open to those other people's experiences, hearing them, learning them, yeah. listening to them, empathizing with it, it gives Believing us a new them. skill. We learn yes. new superpowers. Yes. And and adding on to another fantastic book that I'm in the middle of is Adam Grant's Think Again. Like that book has blown my mind. That's how I learned about desirability bias. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, right? I had never heard that before. And I was like, are they talking about confirmation bias? And then I realized as I was reading and learning from his lived experience, his research, what that was, I was like, yeah. And I mean, just the whole concept of thinking again, right? Thinking that we know that we understand, right? Because we read something somewhere or we heard something somewhere, but actually challenging what we, what it is that we think we know, going even next level and interrogating what we think we know, why we think we feel the way that we feel and we behave the way that we behave. It's, it's very illuminating. I almost dare say not just for our brains, but for our souls. And I think if we can all take a step back and learn from folks like Sharon or Adam and really expand our uh, appetite of information and where it comes from, um, I think that we will be able to grow in the ways that we should as a society and that way, regardless of the environments, those versions, those expanded, beautiful versions of ourselves, will show up to every single one of those environments. That's my goal. That's my hope. Amazing. Well, a good point to close this episode out on. Yvonne, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Chris, love you. Uh, yeah. Wish you could have stayed with us. Sorry, I had to jump off, but we will see you on another one for sure. Yvonne, do everyone a favor and let them know where they can find you, learn more about you, uh, hire you, and and just follow you for the way you're leading. Oh, thank you. So, yes, on LinkedIn, always on LinkedIn in some form or fashion, whether I'm on a podcast like this or um, giving my own thought leadership to topics related to DEIB. So LinkedIn, uh, our website is indelible-consulting.com. Yes, I know it's annoying and really long, but it's what was available at the time when okay, I launched the firm. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, those are the two best places. So if you have thoughts, share them. If you're interested in working with myself and my team, uh, we're available for those consultations and yeah, just reach out to us. We love to help. And we do it with radical empathy and compassion to boot. So amazing. Yvonne, I always love talking to you, whether it's broadcast or not. Uh, it is always <laughs> one of my favorite uh, times of day. I want to post this, uh, uh, show this comment that Jason uh, just posted also, but he said, thanks for the stimulating conversation. I need this on a Friday. So thank you, Yay! Jason, for tuning in. Love thank you. you appreciate you. Um, and love you, Jeff. 
Um, for everybody else that was listening, uh, whether you tuned in with us live or whether you listened or watched after the fact, make sure to follow me on LinkedIn, subscribe yeah. on YouTube, catch the show live, or you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Um, you can find it at shareable.fm slash nap dash time. That's where you can find links to absolutely everything and see all the past episodes. Thank you for all of your attention and or feedback it means a lot. And I will see you next week once the baby falls asleep. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Thank you.